0: Welcome to the Urban Lab with Sam Chandon, the podcast on cities and the built environment, featuring leaders in industry, research and policymaking. Welcome to the Urban Lab. I'm Sam Chandon, the Silverstein Chair of the NYU Shack Institute. The Urban Lab is a nonpartisan program featuring leaders in private industry, public service and research who join us to share their views on improving all aspects of urban life, the competitiveness of cities, the housing and labor markets, and urban epidemiology and public health. Each month following the release of the latest job numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'm joined by Professor Marianne Wanamaker for her first take on the national data. Professor Wanamaker is one of the country's foremost labor economists, professor of economics at the University of Tennessee Knoxville Haslam College of Business, and the executive director of the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy. So She was previously the chief domestic economist with the White House Council of Economic Advisors, where she was also the White House's senior most labor economist. The monthly segment is produced in collaboration with Labor IQ by Think Why. The LaborIQ platform empowers decision makers with data-driven solutions for talent acquisition, retention, and strategic growth planning, including data, compensation tools, and job market forecasts. You can find LaborIQ at thinkwhy.com. Marianne, the biggest job gains since August of 2020, meaningful upward revisions for May and June, the lowest unemployment rate since the beginning of the pandemic, Is this the report you're expecting?
1: It's not what I was expecting necessarily, but it's certainly what we've been hoping for. So just backing up a few months, we were hoping for the million dollar or million job report Um, in April. We didn't get it. And that really sparked a reassessment of the recovery, a lot of concern that we weren't going to get a robust recovery here. And so I think having close to a million jobs in each of the last two months after revisions, I think gives people a lot more confidence that this recovery doesn't necessarily need more support from the government, we're sort of going to get there, or the market's going to get there on its own.
0: Right. When I look at, and I took a brief glance at some of those numbers coming out of the report this morning, I didn't see any segment of the labor force, any category where numbers looked like they were collapsing? You know, some negatives here or there. I think state and local government uh, was one area where we saw some decline. But uh, there didn't seem to be any significant unevenness to the downside. Is this as broad-based as it looks?
1: It is. But what's, of course, also still broad-based is the gap. Uh, relative to February 2020. So there's not a segment of the economy that has fully recovered yet. And so every single sector has room to run. And so I think you would expect, um, absent some change in the public health situation, and we could talk about that, but I think you would expect to continue to see broad-based gains until some of these sectors are sort of back to normal.
0: Yeah. I mean, when we look at the job openings and labor turnover, survey. It does look like we have record numbers of job openings. We don't quite have, you know, as strong as this report is, we don't quite have record numbers of uh, net new jobs being created in the economy. Is that still about skills? Is it about spatial? And how much of it might be about something that you and I have discussed previously, some of the incentives in the market some of the non-market incentives, I should say, potentially keeping people out of the labor force?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. Labor markets always have frictions. So even when there are a ton of jobs available and a ton of job seekers, and I would not call our current unemployment rate, I don't think it represents a ton of job seekers. It certainly doesn't represent enough seekers for the jobs that are out there. But even if you had an equal number of seekers as the number of jobs, you wouldn't expect that to close or those job matches to happen in a short period of time. Um, jobs and job matches, employer to employee, are really quirky things. They have a, there's a lot of elements to that match, and so you would tend to think that even a really highly qualified worker who gets laid off or decides to change jobs, it takes months to find the right match. So I think, you know, a million jobs a month is about as good as anyone could hope for. And the rest of it, we think, will work itself out over time as these sort of job matches get sorted out.
0: You know, one of the things that you and I have also spoken about is some of the geographic or regional unevenness. And certainly earlier this year, you know, your experience in Knoxville, just the vibrancy uh, you know, whether well, you know in in leisure hospitality, uh, put it in a very different place as compared to New York or Boston, uh, Washington DC. Uh, there's a palpable uh, change in the level of activity uh, in New York City. Certainly, are we seeing uh, that uh, there's an improved evenness? in uh, the jobs recovery. And I realize, of course, that you know, the report that came out today is a national report. It doesn't break it down uh, regionally. But based on what you've seen uh, in some of the other data since we last spoke, uh, you know, is uh, the recovery in the Northeast and other parts of the country catching up to you know, some of that uh, improved activity in the South?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what you're seeing. And really in places like Tennessee, where I am, you're seeing kind of a stalling out of the recovery. It, it's kind, We're kind of creeping back the remaining jobs. So I think we're about 2% down. Um, relative to where we were in February, 2020. And it's a little bit like 2% and holding. Whereas if you're in a place that's down five or 8%, you are going to get a much bigger share of these 1 million job gain months because you've got so much more distance to go. So yes, what you're seeing right now is a catch up of places that are a little bit behind. Um, And so the big question from a policy perspective is, you know, no state is all the way back. There are some cities that are all the way back. But no state is all the way back, and just how long does that last leg of the trip take? Um, and I, my sense, my gut is that it's going to take a while. That those that last two percent is going to take us months, bordering on years, to close.
0: Got it. You know, one of the other things that's come up, and uh, I especially uh, was looking forward to the. Opportunity to ask you about this. You know, we're hearing a lot about people's concerns with rising case numbers, uh, the Delta variant. Um, you know, there being a regional, uh, you know, some regional element to that. Certainly here in New York, some companies uh, scaling back on their plans for a more robust return to office right after uh, Labor Day, and maybe thinking about October or, or November, uh, hoping that the numbers stabilize. Can you tell us actually a little bit about? How does the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Situations Survey work with these July numbers? Are they collecting data evenly throughout July? Is it mid-July, late July? Um, And and how might that inform our thinking about whether or not, you know, some of the concerns that have come up over the last couple of weeks uh, may then show up in August numbers and get missed in the July numbers?
1: Yeah, great question. So it's, that that's a true BLS nerd question. So I'm, I'm happy I'm here to answer it for you. So um, the way the employment situation report works is that both the household survey and the establishment survey are taken with respect to a reference week. And that reference week is consistent. It's always the week of the month that contains the 12th. Okay. So, um, so basically you want to think about, or actually for the establishment survey, it's the pay period for the employer that includes the 12th of the month. And the 12th of the month this year was the Monday following the Monday after the 4th, okay? So um so now if you think back to what you were doing that week you probably thought about the delta variant a little bit, you didn't think about the delta variant a whole lot. It really was light years ago in a public health sense. Um and so yes, what you're capturing here really is the behavior of the labor market in the front half of July, which I think we might uh, both agree is probably different from the behavior of the labor market last week of July, first week of August, where we are now. So I do expect that the report that we see for August, um, which will capture behavior for next week, um, the week of August 12th. I do expect that report to contain a slowdown in job gains. Um, and I think it will be in some ways related to Delta. Um, you're seeing, you know, as you said, um, you're seeing more conversation about the Delta uh, variant, but where, where I am at the university, you're seeing some pretty strong changes in university behavior. We're canceling meetings. We're canceling conferences. Things that we that were a full go at the beginning of July now are not. So I do think there's been a shift in the in in momentum. I don't think we're going to go backwards necessarily, but I don't expect a million jobs again next month.
0: Right, and you know I can speak to the same thing on my campus. Your know, reinstatement of mask mandates. You know, folks, uh, you're really sort of assessing each day. To your point about how you know. The, the week of the 12th of July does seem like a lifetime ago uh, in, in terms of you know, sort of where the numbers are, uh, are you know, making sure that you know, we're flexible as, as circumstances change and being a little bit more careful, I think even as individuals than we were a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, next thing I want to ask you about, I mean, you know, at, at least in the July report and the reports we've seen up to now, you know, the, you know, with these strong gains, the continued improvement, we're, we're, we had wage growth in uh, the most recent report for hourly wages, 4% year over year. That's higher than we would expect to see during a, a period of you know steady, uh, consistent you know, growth in the economy. Is it unusually strong for where we are right now? And is it problematic in terms of the potential for uh, longer term inflationary pressure?
1: Um, I think it's not, there's nothing about that wage growth number that I think is alarm bells. I think it's still within the feds comfort range. Well, within the feds comfort range, they're happy to see a wage growth number like that. I mean, in some ways, some ways workers need to keep up with inflation. So, uh, which I know is a chicken and an egg problem in some ways, but I do think that the 4% numbers, again, not gonna, not gonna make anybody panic. Um, And I think it's what you should expect in a labor market where the number of job openings is multiples of the number of unemployed workers. We've never been in that situation before. And so, you know, I think to get out of that with only four percent wage growth is in some ways a miracle. So I think it's a comfortable number. I don't think it will. I don't think it will appreciably change any Fed policy or any Biden administration policy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. I mean, if we were in a world that allowed uh, us to uh, gather near a water cooler, uh, I'm sure we'd be hearing um, the word inflation. Uh, repeatedly. Um, There are certainly folks who are concerned about whether inflationary pressures that we're seeing are transitory or going to be sustained. But your point about how that 4% number on the wage side of things, given where we are uh, in this recovery, should not be setting off alarm bells. I'm sure everyone's going to continue to watch it closely. But uh, you know it's it's not a it's it's not at a level that uh, anyone should be panicking. Speaking of how uh, tight the labor market is and and those uh, large number of open positions, I did see in the report that we had nine hundred and thirty thousand job leavers in uh, the month. How should we interpret that number? It's been rising steadily over the last year. Are these folks that are part of that friction? They're going to new Potentially more lucrative opportunities, um, given that there's competition out there for for highly skilled labor? Yeah,
1: yes, but I think the definition of lucrative is nuanced at this point. So I think lucrative can mean, am I getting better wages? Right. But it can also mean, do I get more flexibility? Can I work home, from home more? Can I travel less? Right. People have, again, we, I think we've said this a million times, but people have really reevaluated their priorities in life and what's important to them. And also, you know, for some parents in particular recognize Mm -hmm. that they need a little more flexibility than they've they've had in the past because their kid's situation is more precarious than it was in the past. And so if you're staring down the pipe at August and September return to school, like I am, you recognize that it's not going to be smooth, just like it wasn't smooth last year. We're not, there's no magic switch here. And so we're kind of back in the same situation. So you need the flexibility. And so some of this job switching is about trying to find a good match on the kind of non-pecuniary parts of the job. Um, so lucrative, yes, but I think lucrative means a lot of things right now.
0: It's such a great point. I, I spoke too soon in throwing lucrative out there, certainly not a, a textbook term for any economist, uh, but to, uh, to frame it in terms of uh, financial uh, enumer- remuneration solely would absolutely be a mistake. Into uh, your point, I think Uh, you know, here in New York as well, you know, as we get closer and closer to that point of, um, you know, moving into uh, what I think folks hope will be a a steadier rotation in the office uh, after Labor Day, whether that's in September or October or a little bit further out, absolutely hear about folks making those kinds of trade-offs and thinking about, you know, as they hear uh, from their own companies, from their universities, uh, about what the back-to-work plans are going to be, you know, in some cases, folks looking for other opportunities, which to your point may not necessarily be paying substantially more, uh, but may offer you know the, the, the right balance given uh, what some of their other preferences and, and priorities are. Uh, to what extent uh, do you see that being a, a longer term feature of the labor market? Uh, do we see people making choices then, um, as we look forward, uh, accounting for workplace uh, uh, flexibility uh, more than has been the case in the past.
1: Absolutely. And I think it, I think it goes even really beyond flexibility. I think it, it flexibility is a term you use when you're a working parent, as I am. I think it's also just preferences, right? I mean, I have encountered several of our former undergraduate students who are out in the labor market who said, I just want to work from home. You know, it's not about kids. It's not about responsibilities. It's just, I like being at home and I'm an introvert and this is the way I prefer to do things. And I, you know, I remind them that they're missing out on a lot of networking opportunities and they don't care. And so I think, yes, I think there's going to be, you know, as I said, I think there's this new dimension of the match between employers and employees. And I think it's here to stay well beyond the pandemic. I also think, and we haven't talked about it this week yet, but I really think the labor force participation rate is again a concern out of this report. Um, and it has a similar flavor, Sam. It has this flavor of like, you know, I don't really want to work. I, I don't need to work. But And especially if you're retirement age, a lot of the weakness we're seeing in the report continues to be people 55 and older who just, again, have a new set of opportunities or a new way of thinking about what they want to do with their time and have chosen not to work. And I think, you know, maybe it's good for them. I think if your if you're, um, metric here is labor force participation in GDP, you're concerned.
0: Right. I mean, it does sound concerning to me. Um, if, if, can we sustain our thinking or our baseline understanding of economic growth potential in the economy if we have a permanently lower rate of labor participation in the United States? I mean, this would, uh, I would think, but, you know, please, uh, you know, weigh in on this. That would seem to imply, you know, a, a different benchmark for long-term growth.
1: Yeah, I think, and even more than growth level, right? I mean, I think just the issue is, gosh, if you could just pull all these people into the labor force tomorrow, you'd be at a whole nother nother level of output. And I want, you know, I'm a historian. That's that's what I love to do is kind of think about the long-term evolution of the labor market. And one thing that strikes me about our current labor force participation situation is that at at about, we're at about 61.7% of the population eligible population in the labor force. And our rates have not been that low. Absent the pandemic, our rates have not been that low since 1977. Okay. And so what was happening in 1977? Well, in 77, women had not completed their entry into the labor force. That took really until the late nineties to fully take hold. And so by having this lower labor force participation rate now in 2021, you can think about it as The economy is hobbled by non-participation, just as it was in the 1970s when we were filming, you know, nine to five and still trying to decide whether women belonged in the workforce or not. And that, you know, the, the crippling of the labor market and of output is equivalent. I mean, even though there are different motivations, it's the same story from an economic perspective.
0: You mentioned nine to five. I had occasion to watch some clips from the Dolly Parton movie recently. It seems like such a different world. Uh, I do not recognize, uh, you know, this setting where you know one. I mean, the the genders are so segregated in the workplace. But I have to tell you, one of the also uh, things that struck me is everyone was smoking. Uh, and everyone had an ashtray at their desk. It it was such an anachronistic sort of thing to be watching. Um, other than uh, that weakness in uh, labor force participation, which has potentially very significant implications, what are your biggest concerns, or you know, what are the things you're going to be watching? Um, you know, apart from uh, as well uh, the potential for you know changes in um, you know the direction of the pandemic to to to, to influence. Uh, job creation?
1: Yeah, I think outside of this report, so the biggest thing inside the report is labor force participation. To me, outside the report, I think the thing that concerns me right now is with all of the changes we're seeing at universities, um, we had sort of a lost uh, cohort last year. The college-going rate of those who graduated in 2020 was down substantially, especially at community colleges, and you might think about those individuals those graduates as being the least likely to just take a gap year and come back right we probably lost their college going forever and so what i what i'm curious about going forward is are we going to get the same effect in 2021 as a result of all of these changes to college um to kind of the college experience in the labor market i really hope the answer to that question is no but i'm afraid the answer to that question is yes
0: one last question for you, and this is uh, this can be our word of the day. You mentioned that you're a, an economic historian. I, I, am I right in thinking that the correct term for this is cleometrics?
1: Uh, that is a term. Yeah. Well, cleometrics. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, that <laughs> now, this is a real nerd question. Okay. So cleometrics actually is the practice of economic history using data. Okay, so you can do economic history without data with more kind of a storytelling mode. But if you're going to actually use data to test hypotheses, you would consider yourself a Korean matrician.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Professor Wanamaker, as always, thanks for joining me, especially given that this is a a summer Friday. I, I, I think everyone tuning in really appreciates your insights.
1: Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: That was Marianne Wanamaker, Professor of Economics at the University of Tennessee-Knoxville's Haslam College of Business and Executive Director of the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy. Professor Wanamaker was previously the Chief Domestic Economist with the White House Council of Economic Advisors where she was also the White House's Senior Most Labor Economist. Check the program notes for links to her website as well as the website of the Baker Center. I'm Sam Chandon, Silverstein Chair at the NYU Shack Institute and you've been listening to The Urban Lab. Thanks for listening to The Urban Lab. For more information about the program and our host, please visit
1: samchandon.com slash urbanlab.